We're going to continue in our series that we began uh, about a year and a half ago through the Gospel of Luke. Just a few more uh, weeks left, Lord willing, and uh, this morning we're going to camp out in the middle of Luke 22. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 22. I want to encourage the church to continue to pray for those in our church that are hurting. Pray for the Ambrose family as they still mourn the death of Helen, and we'll have more details about their memorial in the next week, Lord willing, and and also uh, details for Donna's mom's memorial too. We'll have all that. We'll we'll share that with you when we know. This morning we're going to talk about betrayal. We all have fears, and one fear nearly everyone has in common is the fear of rejection. Men feel it every time they hope to ask out a woman on a date. Perhaps you've even felt fear of rejection when you went for a job interview for a position that you really wanted. Most people would never want to work as telemarketers. They face rejection all the time. Where does fear of rejection come from? Researchers tell us it comes from a basic desire to belong and a desire to avoid appearing or feeling like failures. We don't want to be rejected by social groups or cast off by others. And so fear grows in our hearts and we we tend to then shrink back of any and all rejection. However, rejection is part of life. I asked my wife out a few times before she said yes. It's the best decision she ever made. (laughs) I also worked as a telemarketer in high school. So did my wife for a lawn company. So that taught me to accept rejection. And you haven't lived until you've been hung up on. And see, half of you you have no idea what I'm talking about. Because this is what hang up. But no, back in the day, it was like a clang, you know, a phone that just... Learning rejection. We've all felt some sort of rejection at some point. But what if rejection could be redemptive? What if being rejected would actually lead to our blessing? We need to understand that not everything we desire is actually good for us. Actually, getting everything we want can ruin us. Spoiled children who grow up receiving everything they want and and yelling a possessive mind toward everything they see tend to not be the most generous people when they're adults. And so a touch of rejection might be good for them. As we come to Luke 22, we see that everyone is rejecting Jesus It comes from all angles, the disciples, Satan, Judas, the soldiers, even the leader of the disciples, Peter. But salvation won't come unless there's rejection. All of history is moving towards this day, but the greatest rejection that Jesus will suffer won't be from humans. This rejection will benefit us greater than we can probably understand. And through his rejection, we get life. And so don't fear, friends. Salvation comes through rejection. And so here's, here's the main idea. If you to write down anything this morning, this is the main thrust I desire to communicate this morning. It should be on the screen there. Christians should have no fear about this life or the next because Christ is the one who keeps us, gives for us, and forgives us. And we'll see this all play out in our passage this morning. Christ will keep us, Christ will give for us. Christ will forgive us. Three points as we walk through Luke 22, starting at verse 31, all the way through 62. 
That's what we'll seek to cover this morning. So if you haven't already turned to Luke 22, it'll help you, it'll benefit you to have a Bible open as we look at it, starting in verse 31. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And when you turn again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. And he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, nothing. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. Jesus gives us the first glimpse here of his rejection, not by Satan or his enemies in Jerusalem, but what we'll see is by Peter. And yet Christ, it says, Luke says that Christ will keep him. And right off the bat, we find here that, that Satan is interested in Peter. And really, all the disciples, that, that you is not just Peter in the Greek, it's, it's really plural. So he's asked permission to pick them apart. So my mind uh, it's thrown back to the book of Job when I read this, where, where Satan comes before God to seek out those whom he could destroy. But, but Luke says here that Satan has asked to sift him like wheat. What does that mean? Well, Jesus gives us a clue in the next verse. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. This must mean that what Satan wanted to do was to sift the faith out of Peter. Like a sieve shakes the grain from the chaff, Satan has a, a sieve with a jagged mesh designed to sift the faith out of Peter, to, to really, of out of Christians, of out of the disciples, out of us. And that's his goal. And Paul talks about this concern, the same thing concerning the church in Thessalonica. So he sends Timothy to see how things are doing, and he writes this. He, Paul's writing this in 1 Thessalonians. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Paul's concern was that they wouldn't lose their faith. And faith is what Satan goes after. But as we read here, Peter doesn't seem to be concerned at all, does he? No, he says, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Peter, you will. He seems undaunted by Satan and his interests and expresses this confident self-reliance. Peter pledges his devotion, but we know he can't do it on his own. Peter is convinced of his own self-power to endure this testing. He believes in the power of Peter, and he doesn't understand himself. He doesn't understand that he's self deceived. Friends, you need to be aware of your own self-deception. You need to learn from Peter here. You need to know the truth about yourself. Self-knowledge is essential for whatever is the next step in your life. 
And so beware of the, your ability to self-deceive yourself. You are better at it than you realize. Good self-knowledge is essential for life in this world, and especially for life after this world. Do you know the truth about yourself? If you're not a Christian and you're here, we're, we're glad you're here. You are welcome anytime. But I wonder what standard you have apart from yourself to, to be sort of a, a faithful mirror to your own soul. How do you know that you're living the way you should be living? What's your standard? How do you know if you're living the right way? You and I both know that we don't always speak the truth to ourselves about ourselves. We tend to sort of fudge or cook the moral books of our life. Right? We, we, we tend to go very easy on ourselves in, in our moral shortcomings. And, and the reason is we, we convince ourselves that no one really cares. No one's really going to check. We can live any way we really want. But friends, what if there really is that last terrible day of reckoning for your life? And you've wasted all those opportunities to get yourself right with God. Do you realize how utterly terrifying that day will be for you? You'll be rejected that day not because of your personality, but because you ignored and rejected the Savior. And that day will be worse than any other day you've ever experienced on earth. God has made all of us in his image to know him, but we have sinned. We have turned in on ourselves. And we wanted to do what we want to do more than what he wants for us. And this is what the Bible calls sin. We reject his rightful authority in our lives. And because of our rejection of him, he will reject us on that final day. Christians, are you aware of the power of self-deception in your own life? This, this, this is why we talk about and why we mention on a regular basis church membership. It's not because we get some bonus from a denomination. We're not connected to any denomination. We don't get a gold star on the map because we get more members coming in. That's not why we talk about it. And we encourage church membership because we're convinced from the scriptures that to involve others into our lives will actually help us to follow Jesus Christ. That the Christian life was not meant to be lived alone. It's actually one of the main reasons why we have a church. I mean, we meet every week. We, we we're commanded to sing and to worship and to listen to the word, but we're also commanded to be connected and to have a relationship with other people, to encourage others in their walk with the Lord. Listen to what Hebrews says, chapter 10, verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful, and let us consider how to stir up 
one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. And we're encouraged to hold fast to our confession. Where? With one another. And then he says there, to stir one another up. Not in controversy or conspiracies. No, we're to stir one another to love and good works for the service of Jesus. And we're to encourage one another. Why? Why do we encourage one another? Because life is hard. And we need to keep following Jesus. And because that day, capital D, day, is drawing near. That day when Christ is coming back. And so we're to encourage one another. And so, friends, you should not skip church because you just want to sleep in or you had a really busy Saturday night. Sunday morning church is a Saturday night decision. And we need to be here. We need to be involved in each other's life. And you should come and gather to worship and try not to just skip out after the service, racing to your car for lunch. But spend time getting to know one another. See, if you stay away from the body, you're actually disobeying this clear and right teaching that we have here in Hebrews 10. And this is written for your own personal good and for the good of the corporate church. And I recognize there, there's some that are home because of sickness or medical treatment. But I also recognize there's way too many that are home for the wrong reasons. And if you continue to treat the church just as an event to watch online or an event to attend and just skip out when it's done, you open up yourself to strong potential to be self-deceived. You need to be careful. We don't know ourselves as well as we think we do. And we need a church family. Now, this church family is far from perfect. But we strive to keep following Jesus and help others to follow Jesus. And part of the responsibility of a church family is to help spot deficiencies in one another and to love them enough to reach out and encourage them, to gently steer them back into following Jesus. Well, Satan's plan, his desire here that we read It's to subvert Peter's faith, but he won't succeed. Why? Because Jesus has prayed for Peter. And what comforting and encouraging words those are. Peter will not fend off Satan because of his own strength or piety. His perseverance instead finds its roots in Jesus' prayers for him. And this prayer has specific contours. Jesus prays that Peter's faith will not flame out that his faith will continue with vitality and strength. And we see this theme also in John 17, in which Jesus prays for the disciples, asking for them to be kept from falling away. But Jesus is still praying for you, friends. He's praying for you, Christian. We see that in Romans 8.34, it says, the work that Christ does for his people is not over yet. He's still appearing in the presence of God for us and and doing for our souls what he did for Peter here. His present life for them is just as important as his death on the cross. 
And Jesus still is keeping us. Well, at the end here, the last few verses, 35 through 38, Jesus ends this section with a warning to his disciples because things will be changing after his death. He would be sent to death and his disciples would be outlawed, essentially. And so they could no longer expect people to to support them as they once did when Jesus was there. And so he's encouraged them to be prepared. Be prepared for the work in a different way. When he's gone, it's going to be much different. But in all this, Christ keeps us. Second, Christ will give for us. Look at verse 39. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from the prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Although Luke doesn't call it a garden, here we know from the other gospel accounts that this is the Garden of Gethsemane. And right away we begin to see the importance of this scene and why it's set in a garden. If you remember, all humans are in the dilemma they're in because of sin and the actions of one in another garden. Two gardens, two men, Adam and Jesus. The Garden of Eden was delightful. Gethsemane was dreadful. Eden was in a day, Gethsemane was at the dead of night. In Eden, the human race was lost. In Gethsemane, the human race was to be bought. In Eden, Adam talked with Satan. In Gethsemane, Jesus talked with God. In Eden, Adam sinned in the garden. But in Gethsemane, Jesus submitted in the garden. In Eden, Adam took the fruit of the garden. In Gethsemane, Jesus took the cup. Adam fell in the garden, and Jesus began the process of taking on sin in the garden. Do we understand this garden and what transpired here? Why was Jesus in such agony? Why was he so distressed to the point of sweating drops of blood? And why did the disciples sleep? First is the place. Where did he walk? Well, the Mount of Olives, and at the base of this mountain sat, sat a garden. The Mount of Olives was there where Jesus would leave people. He would go there frequently. He would leave people in ministry so he could spend time with the Father. This was his sabbatical place during his ministry because people can be exhausting. But tonight the disciples would follow him. And with the disciples, what were they asked to do? They were asked to pray. Why? So they won't fall into temptation. What temptation? Well, we just finished talking to Peter about that temptation in the group, that the fact that Satan was going to sift them, to to test them, to lose their faith in him. See, Jesus knows what's about to happen. He's going to die. And and what will the disciples do when he's gone? They're, They're going to want to bail. And so he's encouraging them to pray, to do the thing that he does, 
Because third, Jesus goes to the Father, just as he'd always done. And he prays, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. This cup. What cup? Did Jesus take a cup with him when he went into the garden? What does this cup mean? Do you know about the cup? In John's gospel, he tells Peter that it's the cup of the Father. It's his Father's cup. And you have, in that phrase, a combination of two terms that our modern society believes do not go together. See, in the scriptures, cup means wrath, plain and simple. In ancient times, sometimes they would execute criminals by giving them a cup of poison. That's how it's that we understand Socrates was killed. They'd give a cup of poison. That is why in the Old Testament, God's wrath, his justice against evil and injustice is, is depicted in blood-curdling ways as a cup. And the metaphor of a cup is a cup of poison, a cup of death. In Ezekiel 23, it says, You shall drink the cup of his wrath, of ruin and desolation, and you will tear your breasts. You know, the person who, who drinks the poison, they, they stagger and their insides are burning up. Isaiah 54 says, you will drink the cup of his fury and you will stagger. The cup is never pleasant. The cup is never enjoyable. And this cup, this cup is the Father's cup. And that's a startling statement of fact that God the Father is angry against sin. He has warranted wrath against her unwarranted wrath. And this cup is the Father's cup. It doesn't say the cup of God, but the cup of the Father. And what does Father mean? What does Jesus mean when he references God as his Father? He's talking about love and affection. He's talking about an intimate relationship that he has with him. And so he uses this word, Father, and this intimate, Papa. It's his Father, this intimate, most intimate relationship he has. And this world and our flesh runs away from the fact that these two things go together. The Father's cup. If he's a real loving Father, then there shouldn't be a cup. If there's a cup then he really isn't a loving father. They, they say these things don't, don't mesh. They don't, they don't go together. This is cosmic child abuse. But Jesus brings them together for us. He says that he is both. And when he prays about this, he's alluding to what will happen to him on the cross. You see, on the cross, Jesus drank the cup of the Father. But in the garden... Jesus begins to stare and to see into this dark, horrific cup the wrath of God do our sin. Jonathan Edwards, a couple hundred years ago, wrote, God the Father did, as it were, set the cup down before him, which was vastly more terrible than Nebuchadnezzar's fiery furnace. He had then a near view of that furnace of wrath, into which he was about to be cast. 
to stand and view its raging flames and see the glowings of its heat that he might know where he was going and what he was going to suffer. I believe Jesus felt what the prophet Nahum said, who can stand before his indignation, who can endure the heat of his anger. His wrath is poured out like fire. You ever hear that horrible movie in the 80s, The Last Temptation of Christ? Absolutely horrible movie. Don't watch it. Right in that movie, they, they believe, they, 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 they pushed that the, the last temptation of Christ was Mary Magdalene. But they didn't read the Bible. This is the last temptation of Christ. Jesus is in the garden. His friends are to be praying. And they're not. And everybody abandons him. He's absolutely alone. But more than that, Jesus will be utterly abandoned on the cross by the Father. He'll be rejected. So when we understand this, it makes sense why Jesus prays, Father, if you're willing to remove this cup from me, nevertheless my will but yours be done. See, for us to understand the contents of the cup, the desire to avoid it is part of his perfection. Jesus' hesitation is a godly hesitation. It's the right hesitation. There would be something wrong if he didn't flinch at this. Why? And we only need to look back in the Psalms, in Psalms 6 and 13 and 30 and 71 and 88 to understand this because what is the ultimate unbearable terror? It's to be cut off from God. To be cut off from the light of God's face. To be under some outpouring of his anger. And it's the passion of this godly one to be free of that. This is the last thing a godly man wants, to be cut off from God. And Jesus knew he would be cut off from God when he took the cup. He knew exactly what he was doing. He knew he would be rejected for us. And friends, if you don't understand this, your life won't be changed. You have to understand the cup of God's wrath. I've had people over the years, when I share the gospel with them, they respond and and they, they say, I don't believe in a God of judgment. I don't believe in a God of wrath. I don't believe in a God that would send people to hell. I don't believe that God's wrath is is on on all of us. I think that God loves us. He loves everybody. Who who would want a God of wrath? And sometimes I've asked, do you believe in Jesus? And they very often say, yeah, absolutely I do. And I ask, why did Jesus die on the cross? And the usual response is to show God's love. That's all. But think about that response. Is that why Jesus died on the cross? just to show us love? 
Let's say you're outside with a bonfire and you got a friend who, who decides, I'm going to jump into the bonfire to show you how much I love you. Do you look and respond, oh, I see his love for me. No, you say, what's wrong with him? There's something wrong with him. That makes no sense to me. But if you're standing in front of a burning house and your child is in that house and that same friend runs into the house to save, to rescue your child, and they die in the process, you say, behold how he loved us. See, if Jesus dies and gives his life on the cross and we're not in some sort of trouble, if we don't have the wrath of God on us, if we're not on the way to an eternity without God, then, and his death isn't a sign of love. It's, it's strange, it's, it's weird, it's outrageous. But Jesus didn't die on the cross just because he loved us. No, he took the wrath of God for us. On the cross, Jesus cries out, it is finished. What was finished? Jesus drinking the cup. He was drinking the cup of the Father. He was drinking the cup of God's wrath toward my sin, toward your sin. And when he cried out, it's finished, he slammed that cup down. He did what was humanly impossible. See, the cross shows us that God can love us and be just towards our sin at the same time. The cup of the Father means he's equally just and equally loving at the same time. And you will only see the magnitude of Jesus' love for you when you realize that he drank the cup of God's wrath for you. If you just say, I, I just believe in a God who loves everybody, then, then you've stripped away the significance of the cross and you further condemn yourself. But if you look at Jesus on the cross and your only thought is that he loved me, he died for me, for my sins, friends, that changes you. And you see the cross and you believe that you deserve the full wrath of God for your wicked sins of lying and cheating and swearing and stealing and you know you've done those sins. You know you've lived that way and you look at Jesus as he's suffering having nails driven into his hands and his feet and thorns shoved into his skull and you realize that he's done that for me. That he took the wrath of God for, for my sin. You will forever be changed. And until you believe in the wrath of God, you will never understand the love of God. At least not at this magnitude. You will never have a heart changed. It's the same as raising kids. If you choose to just raise them without ever laying down the law for their sins and they just live in your house with no rules, no discipline, just love, you'll eventually ruin that child. They won't really understand love because when they grow older, they'll come to you and question your love for letting them live unruly. Only through understanding the wrath of God and then Jesus' sacrifice for us on the cross do we then fully understand the love of God.
And so this morning, we should respond in praise to our God for Jesus' faithfulness on our behalf. He will drink the cup of God's wrath towards our sin in order to offer us the cup of blessing. And how solemn it is to think of the trembling Savior, the, the stainlessness of Jesus to be cast into utter darkness for me, who can barely muster a mild disgust over my own sin. The gospel should change us. Thinking about the cup should change us. Christ not only keeps us, but he gives for us. He gives his very life. And yet there's still more actors in this story. We're not to the cross yet. Verse 47, and while I was still speaking, there came a crowd and a man called Judas, one of the 12, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were, with, who were around him saw what, he, what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, have you come out against Uh, Come out as against a robber with swords and clubs. When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. What we read here is that Satan and Judas now found their opportune time. He he knew that Jesus would go to the Mount of Olives and he gathers his army to, to direct them now to Jesus. Bluntly, Jesus exposes how gutless and wimpy these Jewish leaders really are. But even more than that, this is their hour, he says. This is their 15 minutes. It's their hour. And really, that's a a scary word. These men are associated with and serving the dark power of the enemy. It, It should shake them. But here we read the disciples step up to defend Jesus Luke doesn't tell us, he says a a disciple, but John tells us in his gospel. Can you guess what disciple it was? Peter. Peter, Peter, Peter. He's always at the center of foolishness. It's very curious why Peter would lash out and cut off his ear. It was just moments earlier that Jesus brought him to the garden and told him to pray so that he wouldn't fall into temptation. And what does Peter do? He sleeps. And then after being chastised, we read, he goes back to sleep again. And isn't this the picture of Christianity right now in our world? Sleeping and then jumping in to defend God on our terms. And so here's Peter, disregarding Jesus' commands on his life and taking charge on his own terms. And he charges one of the servants and cuts off his right ear. And here we see the immaturity of Peter, taking things into his own hands. He thinks, he's convinced that violence will solve this issue. And he shows us that he truly doesn't understand what Jesus is here to do. I mean, it makes sense to us as humans that Peter leaps into action to save his human friend and cuts off the ear of the servant. 
So he wants to prove his loyalty to Jesus. Luke here is the only gospel writer to say that he healed the ear. Matthew, Mark, and John just tell us about the severing the ear and leave it dangling there. But Dr. Luke tells us of the healing. Another opportunity to see the majesty of God. But then Jesus shuts down the violence. He heals, he, he hear, or heals the ear and has a word. No more of this. His kingdom will not be established through force. And so what can we learn here of Peter? Well, simply, are we looking to redirect the plan of God in our life? Do we trust God's sovereignty or do we trust our plan? What would you have wanted? Would you have wanted Peter to be successful in freeing Jesus and helping him escape? Escaping, running from the law, looking to live off the land now. Is this what we'd want? Or do we want Jesus submitting to the authorities? Knowing that through this rejection, this trauma, he would be securing our eternal freedom from sin. Friends, Jesus' plan is always better. We should rest in God's sovereignty more than our ingenuity. Christ will keep us and Christ will give for us. Third, Christ will forgive us. Look at verse 54. Then, he, then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house, and Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too was a Galilean. Peter said, Man, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to them, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. By this time, most of the disciples had run off, except for Peter. To his credit, he had at least followed Jesus when he was arrested. But again, Peter doesn't understand the battle. The battle was between the truth and the lie, the truth being ultimately a person. But he denied the truth, taking refuge in the shelter of pretended ignorance. And here's the scene. You've you've read this before. You've heard it. Peter's outside. He's by the fire. He's noticed by someone in his question, and he denies Jesus. Denial number one. Another recognizes him and denies Jesus again. Denial number two. And then Peter, as Luke says this, this is helpful, has an hour, an hour interval to decide differently, to to reevaluate. And he's noticed again. And what does he do? He denies Christ a third time. You know, this incident with Peter is mentioned in all the Gospels. 
The fact that this incident is mentioned in all of the Gospels shows us the significance of the theological truth being taught here. That even the best of humanity and the most ardent of disciples still needs a Savior. See, the writers of the Gospel want us to see the frailty of humanity so that we would run to Jesus for salvation. This is a moral failure. If Peter, one of Jesus' closest disciples, cannot stand under the pressure of Satan, can any one of us? This is Peter who spent the last three years day in and day out working intimately next and along with Jesus. He saw him. He saw his miracles. He just witnessed him healing this servant's ear. He saw everything. He was the one that walked out of the water towards him. This is Peter. I mean, of all the disciples that that should have been able to do this work, it would have been Peter. And he fails. He denies the one who just a few hours ago stated emphatically that he would never deny. And this is here to show us how weak we are as humans and how we desperately need a Savior, how we desperately need the gospel, and how crucial this would be for him and this night for all of humanity. And Peter denies, but then Luke gives us some insight. He says that Jesus looks at him. How did he see Jesus? Or how did Jesus see Peter? Jesus was most likely in a, in a courtyard or, or possibly being taken to another location. Either way, in this moment, Jesus catches his eye. You've had this happen to you, right? I mean, if you grew up in a house with a mom, you got mom's eye occasionally. The Lord turns and looks at Peter. What did Peter see in that look? Was it sadness? Disappointment? Grief? Compassion? I believe it was a look not of reproach, but of forgiveness and encouragement. Whatever it was, it was the beginning of his recovery. See, in that moment, just with a look, Jesus preaches to Peter's heart with just that glance. And Peter remembers. Looks as he cries bitter tears, the the bitterness of sin, the bitterness of rejection and betrayal. Peter must have replayed that moment over and over in his mind. He remembered the, the prophecy. He remembered what Jesus had just said to him and how his arrogance proudly stated that he would never let that happen. He knew it was real, but he knew even more so now that all of Jesus' words were true. Everything Jesus said was true. He was to be trusted. And so as we read... 
we have a benefit of continuing to read in the, in the Bible, these bitter tears would give way to substantial faith in Jesus. Hope would win with Peter. But this would be the last time Peter would catch eyes with Jesus before his crucifixion, most likely. So it makes sense why we read after Jesus is resurrected that Peter's the one running off to find his Lord, marveling then on his way back because of his Lord being alive. And here is our Lord who, who looks on us and our failures and our folly and our falseness, and he refuses to cast us out into the landfill of lost disciples. Now what we learn in this passage in this section is that Christ keeps us Christ gives for us, and Christ forgives us. Years and years ago, many years ago, I said this, that God placed a man in a garden, and he put a tree in front of him. And he said to that man, obey me about this tree. Don't, don't eat of the fruit of this tree. You can eat of every other fruit in the garden, but not the fruit of this tree. And he said, Adam, if you obey me, you will live and Adam didn't obey. And century later, God placed another man in a garden again. And in this garden, he placed a tree in front of him. And he said, obey me about this tree. But this is a different tree, it's a cross. See, to the first Adam, God said, if you just obey me, you can live, and he didn't. But to the second Adam, God said, son, obey me and I'll crush you. Go to the cross and I'll punish you for them. And Jesus did. Jesus went to that tree and he drank the cup of God's wrath because the first man refused to do it. Refused to obey. It is only at the cross do we see the justice of God and the love of God perfectly coinciding. No place in all of history of this world was the holiness of God more brilliantly manifested than when Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath due our sin on the cross. And through this, we truly see the love of God for us. So I pray that you friends would find salvation in Jesus through this Rejection. You would receive salvation through the cup that Jesus willingly took on your behalf. And that you would have faith in him. And may we come away this morning resting in him even more sure of what Christ has done for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the second garden that secured salvation for us. We thank you for the cup that Jesus took on our behalf. We thank you for the endurance of Jesus, for the love of Jesus, for the faithfulness of our Lord. And may we remember what happened on that evening this week as we enter into the world. As we gather with friends and family for Thanksgiving, may we remember with Thanksgiving all that Christ has secured for us. And may we leave this place determined to share that hope with someone else. We thank you 
We thank you for giving that cup to Jesus. And he drank it down for our, for our benefit. Thank you, Jesus, for your faithfulness. And we pray this in your name. Amen.